I, I like a, a, a piece I read years ago, and it was entitled, And Then I Drew My Circle Again. And it's about a man who became a Christian. At first, his circle was really wide of all those who accepted Jesus and come to Jesus. And then he began to have a theological dispute with some people in his church, and he drew his circle a little bit tighter. And then there were some people who um, went to some movies he didn't think were appropriate. He drew his circle of fellowship a little bit tighter. And then there were people who he thought, you know, were self-righteous. And so he drew his circle a little bit tighter. And finally, he's within his circle, and all there is is he and his family. It's the only thing they can do is meet together. And then his wife begins to believe something he's not so sure about. And the poem ends with, and then I drew my circle again, and I found myself all alone. That's so easy to do. And that's why where we started last week is so important. I want to review some of the principles that we looked at last week about those are things that are more important. We looked at Jesus talking about weightier matters of the law. We looked at Jesus saying there are first and second commandments. And Paul saying there are some things of first importance that are more important than other things. And here are the points we made. You can see them already filled in your outline. Some beliefs are more important than others. Some beliefs are actually secondary. It doesn't mean you don't discuss them, but they don't become matters of who we love and who we fellowship. And then here's the important point. The most important beliefs and practices are centered around the gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says the things that are first important have to do with the death, the burial, and the resurrection. We call that the good news of what Jesus had done for us. And so that led us to two very important practices we talked about last week and this week. Last week we talked about baptism and the practice of baptism. If you weren't here last week, I really would encourage you to get the CD. I think it's a very significant message. Today we come to the Lord's Supper. And let's just be real honest as we begin. These are ancient practices that seem almost out of place in our modern world. They actually sort of get in our way. I mean, what is the deal about somebody getting in a pool of water, having to change their clothes, getting dunked in water, and coming back up? Listen to last week's CD and you'll find out. What is the deal about us meeting together here to take the Lord's Supper? We know many churches don't do that because it really sort of gets in your way of planning your service. If you want to get people in and out of church within an hour and you want to have plenty of time for worship and plenty of time for preaching, then you've got to deal with this supper that a lot of people aren't even going to understand. I mean, you bring a a non-believer in here and that person may think, well, my goodness, they've got a snack in the middle of church. And then they're going to think, it's not a very good snack. <laughs> it's a piece of chiclet bread and a little, you know, wine, <laughs> little cup of grape juice. Come on, they got to do better than that. Uh, one of my good preaching friends is a man named Don McLaughlin. And he, he grew up in a non-Christian family. They'd really never been to church. And one day they just decided to go to the church closest to them in their neighborhood and happened to be a church of Christ. And they got there late. And they couldn't believe it. They were so excited because the best seats were left open, the front seats. I know you don't believe that, but but he believed that. And so him and his two brothers and his mom and dad, I mean, him, his one brother and mom and dad came and sat down on the front row. And they were all excited. They hadn't been in church. And then the guy got up and led the communion prayer. And they started passing the bread. And they didn't really know what it was about. But there were were four pieces on the plate, so it's one for each one of them. 
<laughs> and they took it and they noticed the plate was empty. And the guy serving communion looked at them really weird. They didn't know what to do. So they said, thank you. <laughs> you know, some people come in here and it's like, what is this deal you call the Lord's Supper? Even Jesus, we'll see a passage in a little bit, where Jesus freaked people out. I just think about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Man, that certainly seems like it's out of place in modern culture. I mean, it really just sort of gets in the way. And yet when we look at the Bible, I mean, this was the center of their worship. It, it, it was something that was, that was so important to them. It, it really it surprises me the amount of religious people who minimize the two things that Jesus says you need to do. If you want to read through the Gospels and find out what Jesus said we all need to do, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet that's the very thing we're tempted to sort of discount. Now let's just think a little bit about how big a deal the Lord's Supper was in the early church. In fact, we're going to look at a scripture today where a church is abusing communion. And Paul's going to say, God has struck judgment on this church. And because you're abusing communion, there are some of you that are sick. And there's even some of you that died. That's scary. But that's exactly what he says. Why? Because it was from the beginning of the church, it was really important. Acts chapter 2, remember that story? 3,000 people were baptized there in Jerusalem. They're from all over the world. They form a church there. Most of them decide they just need to hang out in Jerusalem for a while and not go home. And so the church is meeting in homes all over Jerusalem. They've got four, four priorities, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They're devoted, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Breaking of bread, that is always the term for the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus did. He broke the bread. So they're devoted to that. If you'll read that text closely, you will see they're taking the Lord's Supper every day. I mean, they're meeting together. And the Lord's Supper at the beginning was taken in the middle of a meal. The early church called it the love feast. You would get together and you would have a meal together. And in the midst of that meal, you would break the bread and you would drink the cup. And you remember that Jesus was with you. And you remember his life and his death and his resurrection. It was an amazing thing. And, and they're so hyped up about it at the beginning. They're doing it every day. I remember when we first went to two services, someone said, well, what are you going to do about communion? You can take it twice. As if there would be something wrong with taking it twice. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't think you could ever take communion too much. The command of Jesus is whenever you do it, remember him. I was reading about this church this week. I thought it was fascinating. In the elders meeting, every time the elders met, the first thing they did was take communion together. And they said it had completely changed their meeting time. I'm telling you guys, early church... They're doing it, at the beginning at least, about every day. By the time we get to the 20th chapter of Acts, it seems they've settled into certainly weekly communion. The resurrection day, the first day of the week, has become the Christian day to gather and to worship. And right in the middle of that is, is, is communion. And so, so they're beginning this practice that we practice even today of weekly communion together. You know, we're not the first people to do that. It started back in the first century. You read some of the the early church fathers. That's what happened in the in the church even after the scriptures were written. It was it was just the center of their worship. You read even some of the Reformation people like John Knox and John Calvin. They all thought weekly communion was absolutely what the church should do. 
And, and so they're doing this. Now, by the time we get to the book of Corinthians, we got some problems centered around communion. Remember what I told you that was taken in the middle of a meal? That was the practice. It was called the love feast. And, and what it really was was you came to church for a potluck. And everybody's bringing, bringing their food. Now, you're not going to understand the passage we're about to read unless you understand what I'm about to say. They're having this potluck, taking communion in the middle of it. But in Corinth, the church has become so divided and so crazy that the rich people are showing up with a bunch of food. The poor people don't have much food. And you know what happens? The rich people get in their corner and eat by themselves. And some of them even leave early, leaving the poor people with nothing to eat. And so communion, common union, which was meant to bring people together, has become the very symbol of division in the Corinthian church. They've completely abused it. And so when Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 11, go ahead and turn there if you would with me. You're going to see some of this passage on the screens. I'm going to go a little bit further than what we have on the screens today. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. And and, and now hopefully you'll understand what he's saying, understanding the context. They didn't view the Lord's Supper quite the way we did. We do. And so you're going to see what he's addressing, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Can you imagine? We, we talk about the church having problems today. <laughs> These dudes are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Listen to his address. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. You've messed it up. And then he goes back to the beginning. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And here's the scary part. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's Bible code for your dead, all right? But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. That's a fascinating passage, isn't it? And so Paul's trying to correct these abuses. And in the midst of this, 
If you are reading that passage in the Greek language, what would stand out to you, there's one word used five times. We don't get it in the English. But it's the word for connect. It's the word for bring together. It's the word for unite. So here's what I want us to talk about today before we take communion together. Communion is a place where we make connections. And Paul gives four connections made at communion. Four connections that need to be made. All right? I hope you'll take notes on this. It should be real easy today. Number one, communion connects the present with the past. Paul says on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he's connecting them back to where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, you remember this. In the midst of what did Jesus institute what we call communion? It was in the Passover meal. And to understand communion, you really need to have a good understanding of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was the Jewish celebration of the freedom they had from Egypt and of that Passover night. Now, now what happened to the Passover meal? A, A child would always ask this question at the beginning. What makes this night different than any other night? And then the father would answer. And he would tell the story of what had happened after Israel had been in slavery for 400 years. And Moses shows up to free them. And Pharaoh fights him. And they've gone through nine plagues. Finally, the tenth plague to try to get Pharaoh's attention and get him to release God's people is the harshest of all. God promises that the death angel is going to pass over Egypt. And every firstborn child, are you firstborn here? Every firstborn child is going to be killed. Now, God made a provision for his people. He said, what I want you guys to do on that night, when you prepare for the death angel to come, is to get together and to have an incredible meal together and to slay a lamb and then take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it over your doorpost. And so when the death angel comes, your firstborn will survive. Now, why would they survive? They would survive because the angel, the death angel, would see the blood of the lamb representing the forgiveness of their sins. The blood of the lamb. He would see the blood of the lamb and he would pass over that house. So that's where we get the idea of Passover. And so this was a holy meal. It had been going on for centuries. Moses had said, you continue to practice this. And then our Lord Jesus walks in and he's audacious enough to change it. Can you imagine that? He's audacious enough to walk in and say, okay, this bread that you take in the middle of this, that you thought was the bread of affliction, I now say it's the bread of my body. And this cup that you take, it's not just a cup of wine. It is the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood that I will shed for you. It's an amazing scene. And in this Last Supper, they have no lamb. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus says, you come to this meal, my friends. I am the main course. So, first of all, communion connects us 
with the past, all the way back to that meal that Jesus took with his disciples before he died, and all the way back to the Passover meal celebrated by God's people back in Egypt. Number two, communion connects your heart to God. In just a few moments, your hand, in your hand, you are going to hold the body of Christ. In your hand, you will hold the blood of Jesus. It is communion. What what does that word come from? Common union. It is to connect you in a special way to God. Now, there's been a debate in Christendom for a long time about communion. And I'm not being critical here. I'm just telling you history, okay? On the Catholic end, the Catholic Church literally believes that when you take the bread and you take the cup, it literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus. If you want the fancy name for it, it's called transubstantiation. That in that moment, literally, not symbolically, literally, you're eating the, bread, the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. The Protestant churches protested that. That's why they're Protestant. And they said it's symbolic. The, the, the bread and the blood simply represents the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. I understand that. But I think there's a little bit of problem with both. I, I think the Catholic view there is sort of hard to swallow because when Jesus says this, you're going to drink my, eat my bread, my body, and drink my blood, he's actually, his body and blood are there, okay? So it's hard to think that it's, it's literal when, when the body is right in front of them. But on the other hand, it seems to me the Protestant view sort of misses the power of the moment. We're talking about a sacrament, guys. This is not just any kind of activity. A sacrament is a physical act with divine power. It's it's something ordained by Jesus by which he shares his grace. And so if we're not careful in the Protestant movement, the Lord's Supper is nothing more special than you having your quiet time at your closet at home. I mean, it's a nice connection with God, but it's not that connected. Now, I want to show you a passage that I think sort of throws that on its ear. And this is the one that Jesus got in trouble for, okay? John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 with me, verse 53. And in this passage, let me hear some Bibles flipping, okay? It's a good, 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 good noise there. John chapter 6. This is where Jesus runs a lot of folks off. Jesus said to them, verse 53, John chapter 6. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then look at down in verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware of that, his disciples even were grumbling. Other gospels tell us that a bunch of Jesus' followers were so upset about this odd-sounding teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood that they left. Because don't miss what Jesus is saying here. 
This brings you life, he says. When you eat communion, you eat, Jesus says, of me. You drink of me. It's more than just an acknowledgement of what Jesus did. It's more than just that you believe it. It's that you imbibe it. Now, one of our problems here is that we have a weak definition back in 1 Corinthians 11 of the word remember, okay? In our culture, to remember simply means to recall. So when we take communion, we're saying, you know, we all remember the old communion tables. Do this in remembrance of me. Beautiful. But, 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 but we are a little weak on that because we think that just means I sit in my pew and I, I recall what Jesus did. But the word in the Greek is actually much more powerful. We have some of this left in the English. If you were to dismember something, what would it mean? It would mean you would cut it off. I mean, if your finger is dismembered, it means it is no longer a part of your body. Okay. To remember in the Greek means that it does become a part of you. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6. This is more than you just recalling what Jesus did. It's more than you just having this symbolic act. It is Jesus coming in you. It is you eating of his body and drinking of his blood. You remember. He becomes a part of you. So today, if you come to this assembly feeling unloved, when you eat of this supper, you will eat of the very love of God that sacrificed his life for you. If you're feeling bitter toward someone who did you wrong, you're going to be imbibing of the forgiveness of God that can give you the power to forgive that person. If your life is full of bad news about your job and about your family and about your finances, this morning you're going to literally taste that the Lord is good. If you feel distant from God today, when you take of this communion, God literally comes in you. Unlike any other way, you are eating and drinking the good news, the gospel, and you're eating and drinking it with Jesus. Jesus told those disciples about there, I will not eat and drink this again until I eat it in the kingdom. He wasn't talking about heaven, guys. He was talking about when he took it with them again. And here's the promise. You talk about being connected with God. When we take communion in a few moments, you know who serves it? You know who stands behind these tables and serves it? It's Jesus. You feel distant from God? Man, by the time you leave this place today, you ought to feel so connected that you believe not only is Jesus here in our midst, but Jesus has come into your body. That brings me to number three. Communion connects the individual to the community. All right? Paul makes it very plain, you are coming to eat together. And at one point when he talks about remembering the body, he's not referring at that point to the body of Jesus, the literal body of Jesus. He's referring to the, the body of Jesus, the church. And here's where we need some teaching. Most of us have been brought up to believe, no matter what your background, that communion is basically my vertical relationship with God. That when I take communion, it's just me and God. And what I'm supposed to do in communion is, is, is get in this bubble and uh, repent of what I've done wrong and recall what Jesus did. That's, that's part of it. That, that is part of it. 
but that's only half of it. It is a common union with God, but it also is a communion with the body. That's why we take it together. The ideal of communion, that's why they first started around a table with a meal, was that it was a a fellowship, a, a communion together where there was no slave or master, there were no rich or poor, there were no black or white, Jew or Gentile. We all, because in the first century, guys, to sit at a table with someone meant you accepted them. You didn't eat with anybody. It was a big deal. And so Paul's so upset here because they've abused, they've abused what should have brought them together has literally contradicted, blasphemed the gospel. It's the craziest thing that we could come together, you know, in our own little separate groups. Some of us not even wait for the other to take communion. And, 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 and rich people over here and poor people over here and some not. He says, you're contradicting what this thing is all about. Now guys, in our context... Many of us were taught the wrong thing. Sorry. We were taught when you take communion, be still, be quiet. Don't you dare talk to somebody. Don't you even make eye contact. You know what I'm saying? Because this is your bubble time with God and don't you dare let anybody disturb it. That's why in our churches, when people started singing during the communion, people got upset. Because it was a misunderstanding. My friends... It is a fellowship with God. It is remembering Jesus. But it also is remembering one another. It's also connecting with one another. That's why I love it when we do communion like we're going to do today at tables. And let me tell you, it's okay if you talk to somebody, all right? It's okay if you give somebody a hug. It's okay if you told somebody you really love them. It's okay if you stopped and talked about Jesus a little bit. In fact, that would be more biblical than what we normally do. Because it is meant to be that connection. It's a fellowship. So share, hug, love, laugh. It's a joyful place. That brings me to the last last connection. Communion connects your life to the future. You proclaim him until he comes. When Jesus comes back, the book of Revelation says... We will meet around another table. We will take of a supper together in the new heaven and the new earth. And listen, what happens when we take communion today is we get a taste of future bliss. Our present, when we come and we take of the Lord's Supper today, we are anticipating Jesus coming back and us being in the party and banquet and supper of all times in the kingdom of God. And so it connects us to that. So, my friends, it becomes an incredible, joyful occasion. We sort of have a morbid view of communion because we're so focused on his death. The commandment is not just to remember his death. The commandment is to remember him. And so I hear people argue with me about this and say, well, you know what? If you go to a funeral, man, you would, you would really, you wouldn't, you wouldn't act that way. You wouldn't talk to somebody. That'd be, that would be disruptive. You wouldn't smile. I mean, they're dead. And here we come to remember the dead body of Jesus. Listen to me. What would happen at that funeral? Let's say the casket's right here in this building. In that casket, if that person popped open and the lid popped open and they were alive, 
You think it might change the atmosphere? And what happened afterwards if we went back and had a fellowship meal together with the guy who just came back alive? Can you imagine the laughter, the joy? Listen to me, friends. That's what you're about to do. He's not still dead. And he's not somewhere else. He's here. Go partake. It's a sacrament. It's a physical act with spiritual power. So let me ask you this morning. Will you make the connection? I just want to slow down here for a minute. Are you going to connect yourself to the past of the salvation history of God? Of freeing his people, freeing us. The blood that caused him to pass over the sins of those families and celebrating today the blood of Jesus that allows him to pass over our sins so that we're in a right relationship with him. In this few, next few moments, will you make the connection with God? I'm not telling you I literally believe this turns into the body and blood of Jesus. I know there's symbolism involved. But a sacrament means there's more than symbolism. It means there's power involved. It means in some special way you commune with the Lord so closely, so intimately, that you partake of him. He is the meal. He is the sustenance. And would you connect with the people in this body? Can we celebrate together that we've been saved? That we're on our way to heaven? That despite all of our differences, we're not drawing the circle smaller and smaller and smaller. In communion, we go, you know what? All of our differences fade into insignificant. That you believe this about that and I believe this about that really don't mean a thing in view of what we do believe together is this incredible gospel good news that Jesus came, gave himself for us, died for us, shed his blood for us so that the death angel can pass over and that he resurrected and he's alive. And would you think a moment and connect with the future glory? We said at the beginning of this message, for a lot of people, the Lord's Supper just gets in the way. It's just sort of a hassle in the middle of a service. It takes up too much time, so let's don't do it every Sunday. I am telling you this morning, the Lord's Supper is supposed to get in the way. It's supposed to get in the way of your selfishness. It's supposed to get in the way of your pride. It's supposed to get in the way of your isolation from other people. It's supposed to get in the way of you walking away from God because this is the place where literally we commune with God, we commune with each other. And so let it get in the way of everything else going on in your life. And let it connect you with things that are so much bigger than you. You see, I, I, love, I, I love these two sacraments because they connect us to the gospel. 
at the beginning of your walk with God, you go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just symbolic of that. You actually participate in it with him. And then as you live your life, at least weekly, maybe more, you remember what he did for you. We're going to sing a song as we begin this time called, oh, I love this whole song, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. You see, guys, we get in trouble when we get too far away from the cross. Everything centers back on the cross. And this is God's way of saying, let me me just interrupt your life. Let me interrupt this service. Let's come to the climax of this service. That's the traditional Christian view of this, that this is the center and climax of the service. And why don't you remember what really matters? Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then there's tables all around here. Just at your leisure, go to the table. Take communion, interact with somebody. Come back to your seat. There may be some of you who need to come to this front row. It's the best seats in the house. And uh, there may be something that as you examine yourself today, preparing to take the Lord's Supper, you may be so far away from Jesus that you need to come back home. And if you want us to pray for you, we'd love to do that. There may be somebody here in the midst of this, you've never been baptized. And you just thought it was sort of a weird little deal, but you have recognized the last couple of weeks that this is big time significant. Even Jesus felt that he needed to do it without sin. And what in the world would hold you back? So if you'd meet me on the front row, you could participate in that sacrament. So these next few moments, let's rejoice. Let's remember. Let's partake. Let's connect. First of all, let's pray. God, thank you so much for what we're about to do, Lord. God, I I thank you, God, just for being able to study this, Lord, because... Lord, for, for so many of us who, who grew up in churches that had high views of baptism and the Lord's Supper, I've recognized tr- truly my view wasn't high enough. That the Lord, that baptism was just a, a checklist on five steps. And the Lord's Supper was just a checklist on five acts. And if I checked those things off and did them right, then some weird way I was okay. <laughs> oh, God, forgive me. Forgive us. It's so much more than that. It's so much more than a checklist. It is truly a sacrament. It's a, these are both special places where we meet you and we encounter divine grace. And so, Lord, as we come to the table today, God, help us to connect with our, the past of salvation history. God, help us to connect with you in a special way we won't connect any other time. Help us to connect with each other and rejoice that we're part of this family together. And Lord, help us to connect with the future joy we'll experience around the banquet table of heaven. God, help us to connect. Thank you for the body. Thank you for the blood. Bless us as it comes within us. And as Jesus says, gives us the grace of life. We pray this in his name. Amen.